Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you convinced yourself you, you absolutely had to have it? You, you had to have it. But then once you got it, you were disappointed. In fact, maybe you even wished you could unget it. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, happened to me uh, several years ago when our family dog died and I immediately wanted a new dog. In fact, I, I needed a new dog. I had to have a new dog. You hear what I'm saying? And uh, I, I wanted not just a new dog, I wanted a puppy because uh, I had fond memories of raising our previous dog from puppyhood and Sue did not think this was a good idea. Can you see where this is going? All right, she just reminded me that, uh, that our kids were now grown, and so they weren't going to be there to care for the puppy, to walk the puppy, and to clean up after the puppy, and feed the puppy, and play with the puppy, and, and, and so on. But I needed a puppy. And so one day I came home with this cute chocolate lab puppy. Thank you. Thank you. But I immediately knew I'd made a mistake. Like two hours later, I get a phone call, and it's from the hospital, and they say a family from Christ Community Church has been in a serious automobile accident, you know, could we come? And so Sue and I grabbed our coats, and we're headed out the door, and all of a sudden it dawns on us, we're going to be gone for several hours. What do we do with this puppy that we just brought into our our home? Who's going to feed it? Who's going to let it out while we're gone? And it, it became obvious that our lifestyle no longer fit with raising a puppy. And not only that, we discovered in the following days that uh, we had grown a little impatient with some puppy things, like cleaning up puppy puddles on the hardwood floor and stopping the puppy from chewing the leg off the antique chair or jumping on dinner guests who are not dog people. You know what I'm saying? All right. So I had to bring the puppy back to the breeder who was kind enough to take the puppy back. The the puppy I needed, I needed. Have have you ever wanted something so badly that you convinced yourself you had to have it, but when you finally got it, you were disappointed and maybe even wished you could unget it? Well, welcome to the final week of a six-part series called Lies We Tell Ourselves. Lies we tell ourselves and the truths that set us free. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's the lie that we're considering today. I need, not a new puppy, but I need a significant other. Now, now I wrestled with the title. Uh, I wasn't completely happy with the title of this sermon because I thought nobody talks like that anyway, and I need a significant other. See, if you're a high school student here today, you probably never said, I need a significant other. Now, you might have said, or, or at least thought to yourself, I need a boyfriend or I need a girlfriend. Okay, if you're here today or you're listening online and you're 34 years old and, and, and single, you, you may have thought, uh, I'd really like to be married. I need, what I need is a life partner. Or if you're widowed or divorced and you're in your 50s, you, you, you might have thought, I need a close companion. I'd like to get remarried. So I considered calling this sermon, I need a boyfriend, girlfriend, life partner, close companion. But that was way too long to fit on the program. So I'm going with, 
I need a significant other, even though I know that nobody talks that way. So two disclaimers before we jump into 1 Corinthians 7. First disclaimer, what if you're here today and you don't need a significant other because you've already got a boyfriend or girlfriend, you've got a life partner, maybe you're sitting next to your spouse right now, or you've got a close companion. So is this sermon not for you? Well, let me just say at the outset, I think that the principles we're about to draw out of 1 Corinthians 7 apply to any situation in which we want something really, really bad, and we've convinced ourselves we need it. We need it. We've got to have it. We need a new puppy, or we need a bigger house. We need a better job. We need a summer vacation with some sizzle to it. We need three days a week on the golf course. We need a posse of friends. We need, need, need. Needing can get us into trouble, and today we're going to learn out why. Learn, learn why. Second disclaimer is this. There is nothing wrong with wanting a significant other in your, in your, in your life. I want to say that again. There's nothing wrong with wanting a significant other in your life. But that desire can become wrong if it grows into a driving need or if you pursue that need in an inappropriate way. So again, let me say, if, if, if you want a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a life partner or a close companion, I am not dissing that desire today, and neither is the Apostle Paul. Okay, we're about to see in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, who wrote this, this passage, he himself was single, and he was quite content with his singleness. And, and, and he wanted other single people, the reason he wrote this passage, he wanted single people not only to be content with their singleness, but to thrive in the midst of their singleness. So even though he is writing as a single man, I want you to know that uh, he, he doesn't look down on anybody who wants or has a significant other. He's a big proponent of married life and close relationships and, and so on. How, however, he is writing this to say, you know, if God's plan for you right now is, is to be single, I want you to thrive in this. I, I don't want you to need a significant other in such a way that it will get you into trouble. So what kind of trouble am I talking about? Three problems we're going to draw out of 1 Corinthians 7. Three problems that uh, needing something too badly leads us into, okay? And the first one is this, if you're taking notes, it's the problem of disobedience. The problem of disobedience. So let's begin reading at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to read some huge chunks of this passage today. So let me read it uh, Rather quickly, but follow along as I read, or you'll see it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? In other words, was he Jewish when he became a Christ follower? Well, he shouldn't become un uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? Okay, was he a Gentile? Well, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. 
And similarly, the one who was free when, when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for addressing these practical matters of our lives. Now, what is Paul saying here? Let me, let me try and sum up this first bit of the passage that, that we just looked at. Okay, Paul's saying, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, okay, if you're a Jesus follower, that's the most important thing about who you are. If you're a Christ follower, that's the most important thing about who you are. So it's, it's more important than your religious background or your ethnicity, or as Paul would say, whether you're, you're, you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It's more important than what you do for a living, or as Paul would say, whether you're slave or free, or school teacher, or Uber driver, or CEO, or lawyer, or whatever. Jesus is more important. He would even say, and we haven't gotten to that part of the passage yet, but he's about to say it, it's even more important than whether or not you've got a significant other in your life. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, Jesus is the most important aspect of your life. So, Paul says, don't spend a lot of time and energy trying to change your status in other areas. Let me repeat that. Jesus is the most important aspect of your life. So don't spend a lot of time and energy trying to change your status in other areas. You get it? Good, because this is a really important point. Now, now, in the midst of making this point, Paul throws out a, a very interesting line at the end of verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. Let me read it to you. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Keeping God's commands is what counts. If you've got your own Bible, just underline that. Now, why does Paul underscore obedience here? Keeping God's commands. Don't miss this. It's because when we become overly determined to change our status in some area of our lives, or we become driven to get something we think we need, then we're tempted to do whatever it takes to change our status. Then we're tempted to do whatever it takes to get what we think we need. And oftentimes, whatever it takes means disobeying God. Oftentimes, whatever it takes means disobeying God. And that's why Paul says here, keeping God's commands is what counts. Beware of disobedience. Now, let, let me apply this to the problem, or apply this problem of disobedience to the matter of finding a significant other. If you feel that you need, you know, if you feel that you, you gotta have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a life partner or a close companion, in what areas might you be tempted to disobey God? So as I thought about that this week, there were three temptations that immediately came to my mind, and you could probably come up with more. First one, I'll call it unequally yoked. Okay, unequally yoked. What do I mean by that? Well, it's an expression that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, yoked was a metaphor that any first century farmer would have understood. If you got some land 
to plow and you got a couple of oxen in order to get them to work together, you bind them together, those two oxen, by placing a wooden yoke over their necks. And this makes the two work together as one. And Paul is saying here, if you're a Christ follower, don't become yoked, don't get into a serious relationship with somebody who's not committed to Jesus. Now, why is this so important? I mean, why doesn't Paul say, hey, if you're... If you're a Republican, I just want to warn you, don't get, get yoked with somebody who's a Democrat. He doesn't say that. You know, he doesn't say here, hey, if you're a white person, don't get yoked with a black person. He doesn't say that. Nothing in Scripture along those lines. He, he doesn't say, hey, if you're a Cubs fan, don't get yoked with a White Sox fan. Although if you are a Cubs fan, why would you want to get yoked with a White Sox fan? <laughs> just saying. Now, it's, it's just followers of Jesus that Paul warns not to get unequally yoked with a significant, significant other who's not a follower of Jesus. So why not? Because Jesus impacts every single aspect of your life. I mean, how you spend your money, what you do with your, your free time, where you place your priorities, why you make certain decisions. If Jesus is your king, it impacts everything. See, I've watched countless Christ followers over the years ignore Paul's counsel in this regard. And so they have dated or they've married or they've remarried someone who's not a Christ follower because they so needed. They, they had to have a significant other. And in many cases, they, they convinced themselves Selves, well, you know, this dating relationship, it's not serious, it's just a friendship. Or they convince themselves, hey, by me having this close relationship, this intimate relationship with an unbeliever, I'm going to lead them to Christ. Or they've convinced themselves, yeah, they're not a Christ follower, but they do believe in God, and they're not against me following Christ. But unequally yoked always leads to trouble. There is the heartache of not being able to share the most important aspect of your life. As one woman said to me last night, my husband who's not a believer, we've never prayed together, and that hurts so badly. It means conflict over mismatched priorities and values. It often leads to a lessening of your own fervor to follow Jesus unequally yoked. Let, let me add a footnote here. Okay, if you're unequally yoked, you, you got married to an unbeliever or you were both unbelievers when you got married and now you're a Christ follower, uh, what, what is Paul suggesting? That you dump your spouse and find somebody who's a Christ follower? No, Paul would tell you marriage is for keeps. And he would even say, yeah, by all means, use this relationship to have influence, spiritual influence in your mate's life. But he's warning single people, be careful that you don't need a significant other so badly that you compromise in this area. You'll be sorry. Second temptation. You know, when you got to have a significant other, second temptation that comes to my mind, sexual immorality. Let me give you a little historical background to the New Testament epistle, this letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul was writing to a group of people whom he had personally introduced to Jesus. And they lived in a city, they lived in a city called Corinth that was very cosmopolitan, very hip, very much a hookup culture. Okay, sex was a big deal in Corinth. It, it was even part of the local pagan religious celebrations. And so some Corinthian Christ followers, they were saying, well, you know, you got to go with the flow of the culture. 
I mean, if people in our, our culture, if they're hooking up, if they're having sex with their significant other, if, if, if they're living together without the benefit of a marriage commitment, well, when in Corinth, do as the Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul's response was, stop it. I don't care what your, your culture is telling you is okay. Let me repeat that. I don't care what your culture is telling you is okay. God's word is very clear, and God's word says that God designed sex. I mean, he's the originator of sex, and he designed it to be the superglue that holds a married man and a married woman together for life. It's good. Sex is a good thing in the right God-honoring context. But, but if you superglue yourself, friend, to a significant other you're not married to, the Bible calls that sexual immorality. And it will not only damage your life, the Bible says it will totally undermine your relationship with God. So, you know, don't use the excuse, well, I'll never get a date if I'm not willing to have sex. Or, or the excuse, well, we've been going together for three months now, so sex is kind of appropriate, isn't it? Or we're engaged to be married, so now it's okay. You know, or, or we're living together just because we thought we would try this out before we actually, you know, tie the knot. Or we've both been married in the past, so we're sexually experienced, so it's okay. Now, you, you can try to fool yourself with excuses like these, but you're not fooling God. Do you really think that God looks at, at your sexual immorality and just shrugs his shoulders? Well, you know. Because that's a God that you've made up in your own head. That's not the God who reveals himself to us in the pages of his holy word. I need a significant other often leads to the problem of disobedience, like sexual immorality. Here's a third example that comes to my mind. An unprocessed divorce. Unprocessed divorce. When, uh, when I took on my first senior pastor gig, it was in a small church out on the East Coast. And when Sue and I arrived uh, in that area, we got to know the folks of the church. And I remember meeting a couple, a married couple named Phil and Dell. And uh, the strange thing about Phil and Dell is that I never saw them together. Okay, they never got within 15 feet of each other. In fact, they didn't even sit with each other in church. And finally, somebody explained to me what the deal was. They said, well, you know, uh, this is the second marriage for Phil and for Dell. Uh, Phil had been widowed and Dell had been divorced. And they needed a significant other and found each other. And their friends warned them, you know, this whole thing's going a little bit too fast. Slow down. But they decided to get married anyway. And Phil had not yet processed the grief of the loss of his first wife, and Dell had not yet processed the problems that had led to her first divorce. So it was a disaster. Now, when I met them, they were still living together under the same roof, but at opposite ends of the house. Ma marriage is serious business, which is why at Christ Community Church, we don't remarry people unless there's been a period of time, and we usually suggest it's several years, a period of time when you've worked through your grief, when you've worked through whatever the problems were that led to your divorce, that's got to be untangled before you move on and try to start a new relationship. The Bible is very explicit in giving us guidelines about divorce and remarriage, and we're foolish if we don't follow them. 
You know, this is, this is why, by the way, this is why we do divorce recovery at Karenite on Tuesday nights at Christ Community Church. And we do a brisk business in this regard. It's so helpful, so helpful. Don't let your need for a significant other tempt you to disobey God. The problem of disobedience. Second problem, the problem of distraction. The problem of distraction. Now let's go back and I'm going to read another big chunk out of 1 Corinthians 7. Pick it up at verse 25. Paul says, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So let me stop there for a moment, define a word. Virgins doesn't mean to Paul what it means to us today. When we we speak of a virgin, we're speaking of someone who lacks experience sexually, not had sex. For Paul, he's not using the word that way. He's, He's using it to refer to single people, whether or not they've had sex. So if you're here today or you're listening online and you're 17 or you're 28 years old or you're 42 or you're 61 and you're single, this passage applies to you, okay? All single people. Verse 26, because of the present crisis, underline present crisis, we're going to come back to it. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. So are you pledged to a woman? So are you engaged? Well, you know, don't seek to be released. I'm not suggesting you got to break your engagement. Are you free from such a commitment? Well, don't look for a wife. You know, don't need a significant other. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For the world in its present form is passing away. I'd like you to be free from concern. Now, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. We're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 34. Now go back to verse 26. I told you to underline the present crisis. What's Paul talking about? What's this present crisis that Paul alludes to? Bible scholars have wrestled with this for, uh, for ages because Paul doesn't tell us what the present crisis is. Now, some Bible scholars think maybe it's a, uh, an actual crisis in the vicinity around Corinth. And historians know that around the time Paul wrote this New Testament epistle, there was a famine in the land. There was a crop shortage. So if that's the case, here's what Paul's saying to single people. He's, he's saying, listen, in light of the present crisis... It makes good sense to stay single because if you're married, you got to be concerned not not only about your own life, but about your family. You got to be concerned not only about putting food in your mouth, you got to be concerned about finding food for your wife and for your kids. So if you're single in a crisis like this, not only are you free from family concerns, you're also free, listen, you're free to serve other people. You're free to come alongside and, and devote yourself to helping others out through a difficult time like this. Now, that's one possible interpretation of what Paul means by the present crisis. But but let me give you an interpretation, a second one, that I think is more likely. And this interpretation is held by by many scholars. It'll take me a few minutes here to unpack it. Here's what they say. You know, Paul was on a mission. 
Paul was on a mission. He wanted to reach as many people as possible with the good news of Jesus Christ. People, uh, Paul knew that when people heard and, uh, about Jesus and they surrendered their lives to him, their sins would be forgiven and they would be spared the penalty of eternal death. Did you know that's the penalty for our sins? Okay, the Bible says, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Okay, what it, what it means by that, and you've heard me explain this before, is that when we deliberately go our way instead of God's way, which is something we all do every day of our lives, what, what we're doing is disconnecting from God. We're setting ourselves up as our own little king or we're the queen on the throne of our lives. We're going to do what we want to do. We're not checking it out with God. And the scripture says when we go our way instead of God's way, when we disconnect from God, because God is the giver of life, guess what the consequence of disconnecting from God is? It's death. The wages of sin is death. Now, death st starts as spiritual death on the inside. We've got a broken relationship with God. And spiritual death, the Bible says, leads to physical death. We're all going to die physically. And then after physical death, if you've not remedied this problem of death, you head into eternity, into eternal death, eternal separation from God. Now, the good news is that God loves you so much that God sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for your sins. The penalty is death. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the death that you and I deserve to die. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, he now had the, has the ability to give you, if you'll surrender to him, Jesus will give you forgiveness for the sins that lead to death, and he will give you life everlasting, life that begins the moment you put your trust in him. So if you've never surrendered to Jesus, you need to do it today. So you don't want to face the prospect of having to pay for your own sins because the payment is eternal death. So this is the message this is the message that Paul wanted as many people as possible to hear. That's why Paul trudged all over the then-known world sharing the good news of Jesus. That's why Paul started up churches in every community he visited that would point to Jesus. Paul saw his mission as extremely urgent. He was constantly in what we would call today crisis mode. You ever spoken of that? Yeah, I'm in crisis mode. Paul was always in, in crisis mode. That's why he says in verse 26, the present crisis. What he's referring to, friends, is the constant challenge of connecting people with Jesus before it's too late. Connecting people with Jesus before it's too late. In fact, look at the opening line of verse 29. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. The time is short. Paul knew there was only so much time in any Christ follower's life, time to serve Jesus, time to tell others about Jesus. And Paul didn't want any Christ follower to be distracted from this mission. See, that, that's why Paul makes the strange statement in the second half of verse 29. Look again at the second half. He says, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. What? Is, is, is Paul telling husbands it's okay to ignore their families? You know, guys, if you're married, just live as if you don't have a wife. Okay, so play lots of golf, go on fishing trips, hang out with your buds, watch ESPN sports. No, no Paul is saying if you're a married Christ follower, listen, if you're a married Christ follower, don't let your family responsibilities become an excuse to neglect your mission. 
Yes, your wife and your kids, they do need your time and attention. They're part of your mission. But don't forget that there's a lost world out there that needs Jesus. And so serving Jesus, telling others about Jesus, has got to be a significant priority for you. If you're married, marriage doesn't become an excuse to avoid that mission. And that's why Paul says to single people. And so guys, if you're single and you could avoid the many distractions of married life, if you could avoid the distraction of being so consumed by the pursuit of a significant other, do it. And focus instead on serving Jesus in your church and serving Jesus in various ministries that are reaching people with the good news. You get it? Good. Good. When I, Sue and I started out in ministry just after being married. Our very first ministry assignment, I was a youth pastor in a uh, rather small church in a Boston suburb. And uh, by God's grace, we started out with like 20 middle school and high school kids. And by God's grace, he started leading students into our ministry. And we were seeing them come to Christ and they wanted to tell their families about Jesus and spread the word in their schools and our group of 20 grew to 200 students in about a year and a half, two years' time. And I quickly realized that our small church, we did not have a budget to hire additional youth staff. And so I was on my own. And so I determined the way I, I was going to get leaders, I would make them out of students. I would recruit students to be leaders, transform them into leaders, and then give them that responsibility. So the first guy I did this with, a guy named Jay, I started me with Jay for Bible study. I think he was a junior at the time. And uh, then I started mentoring him in leadership uh, responsibilities and principles. And then I said, hey, Jay, I'd like to put you over a team of about 30 high school students, your peers, okay? You cool with that? And Jay was cool with that. And the dude was running and gunning with Christ. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I, I told Jay, I said, Jay, don't forget, there are people in your high school, your buddies, who don't know Christ. Okay, you got to reach him. And so he brought his buddy Steve to our youth ministry. And I'm imagining this is so sweet because we're going to start reproducing leaders now. See, we're going to see Steve come to know Christ and we're going to disciple him and get him into God's word and teach him leadership responsibilities and give him oversight of some students. And the plan would have gone exactly that way if it hadn't been for Tina. Okay, Tina caught Jay's eye. Okay, and pretty soon, Tina and Jay were an item, okay? They were a couple, and Jay lost all interest in leadership responsibilities. In fact, he even left his buddy, Steve, you know, by the side of the road, and I thought, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to go. If Jay's not going to go after his own friend, I'll go after Steve, and Steve was an athlete, so I said, Steve, let's work out together. Let's run together, so we started running together and eventually led Steve to Christ, surrendered his life to Jesus, and I got him into God's word and taught him leadership responsibilities, and then I said, Steve, I want you to oversee a group of 30 kids, okay? Can you do that? Sure, I can do that, and he was going great guns until he started dating Nancy, I quickly realized as a young youth pastor, oh, I see how this works. The quickest way to extinguish a high school student's fire for Christ, their, their, their determination to serve him, the easiest way to distract them from that mission is just get them dating somebody, and it's all out the window. Wow. 
Let me say something to those of you who are high school students. And by the way, we picked a lousy weekend for this particular sermon because we've got like several hundred high school students on their way up to camp at SPR. All right? So if you're a parent of one of our high school students, your job is to make sure they listen to this sermon at some point. Tell them you'll give them 20 bucks to listen to Pastor Jim's sermon and talk about it with you. Say, say, what did you get out of it? 20 bucks if you could tell me what you got out of it, okay? We'll go get a foo-foo drink at Starbucks and talk about this, all right? So let me say to those of you who are high school students, who are watching this at some later date, maybe, are you more interested in serving Christ or finding a boyfriend or girlfriend? Okay, are, are, are you more interested in your friends at school who don't have Christ and so they don't have forgiveness and they don't have eternal life? Or are you more interested in your current love interest? If you're a single person who's here today, are you leveraging your singleness to serve Jesus? Are you leading a community group or mentoring a group of children in kids' world? Are you a zone leader here welcoming people through our doors? Are you working with one of our community impact partners in the broader community? Have you thought about jumping on one of our go team trips to Nicaragua or Brazil or, or, or wherever? Or is all your time absorbed with trying to find a life partner on eHarmony? Nothing wrong with eHarmony, okay? Don't misquote me here. Nothing wrong with eHarmony. But what Paul would say to you, but don't let it become a distraction. Nothing wrong with wanting a life partner, but don't let it deter you from the mission that Christ has given you. If, if you're a single person who comes to our single ministry, singles ministry here at Christ Community Church, you know, singles ministry around the country, they are notorious. They are infamous for being fishing ponds. You go there to catch somebody. That's why you go. If you're a single person, is that why you go to our singles ministry? Or do you go because you want to learn about Jesus and you want to discover where you can serve Jesus and because it's a place where you could bring your friends who don't yet know Jesus and they're going to find Jesus? The problem of distraction. This is not, I'm not beating you with this club out of you know, guilt trips or this is, I don't want you to miss the biggest mission of your life because it's what, what makes life an adventure as a Christ follower, what, what makes it truly exciting. Third problem, the problem of devotion. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7 one last time. We're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 34. Circle the word devoted or devotion as it pops up a couple of times in these verses. An unmarried woman, middle of verse 34, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. That's what we've just been talking about. She's not distracted. Okay? Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Now, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion, devotion to the Lord. Let me talk to you for a few closing moments about the problem of devotion. Uh, one of the books I read in preparation for this six-week series is a, a book entitled Lies Young Women Believe. And so I was working on this sermon this past week, and Sue happened to come in on me and see me pouring over this book, Lies Young Women Believe. And she was quite, quite amused by it. So she took a picture and she sent it to our kids with the caption, should I be worried about your dad? <laughs> so, 
Uh, just doing my research, okay? And the two women who wrote this book did their research. They interviewed a bunch of young women in focus group settings. And one of the young women said something I thought was really, really cool. Here, here's what she says. I was completely boy crazy in 10th grade. My parents were worried. I wasn't dating guys per se, but I felt this unquenchable desire to have a boyfriend. Unquenchable desire. I have to have. I need a significant other. She continues, my mom helped me plan something really cool. For one year of my life, my junior year, I was going to concentrate completely on my relationship with God. In addition to my daily Bible reading, I spent one weekend evening a week just with him. If you're a high school student, it's a huge commitment. One weekend evening a week. My heart was just focused on God. And after about two months, I was like, guys, what guys? It was one of the best years of my high school career. See, I want to close today by emphasizing the importance of cultivating an intimate relationship with God. Devotion to God. Th that means spending time every day in God's word because this is his book. This is his means of speaking to you. Do you want to hear from God? You know, pick up a Bible-savvy reading schedule. Dig into God's word every day. It, it means learning how to pray and Prayer is something you got to learn how to do, and you learn how to do it by doing it. If, if you've never read my book, Prayer Coach, I, you know, I couldn't recommend it highly enough as a summer reading project for you. Take it with you to the beach or sit on your back patio and read it, okay? Thank you for the applause there. <laughs> the one person who's read it. Yeah. You know, seriously, I get... I get emails from all around the world, people saying, hey, read this book, was so helpful. I'm not sure it's the best book on prayer in the world, but I know this, it's one of the most practical books on prayer you'll ever read. It'll, it'll get you praying. It, it, it means devotion to God means getting yourself in a circle of friends. We call them community groups around here so that weekly you can discuss how you're growing in your relationship with Jesus. You, you can enrich your relationship with him. It means coming on the weekends. Don't let anything get in your way. Engage in heartfelt worship to him, devotion to God. God wants our devotion. Our devotion. You know, one, one of the characteristics of God that's repeatedly referenced in the Bible is his jealousy. God's a jealous God, we're told. God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. Okay, when we get jealous in a relationship, it's because we're insecure or because we're self-centered or we're controlling. When, when God gets jealous for your devotion, it's because God wants the best for you. And here's what God knows. God knows that there is not a significant other on the planet that will give you what only he can give you, his protection, his provision, his purpose-filled life. And that's why God wants you to seek him first and foremost. Hey, married people, you need to hear this too. Your spouse can't give you what only God can give you. This is why he wants your devotion. And if you're thinking, if you're thinking, well, okay, I get it. You know, God's got to be my everything. So no significant others, no friends. It's just me and God. No, it's not what I'm saying. In fact, one of the one of the byproducts of being devoted to God, one of the rich rewards of being devoted to God is that he gives you friendships that are deeper than any friendships you've ever experienced. I mean, within the body of Christ, when you share Jesus in common with friends, and one of the first things I did this morning after visiting my mom to tell her about dad's passing was to 
text my buddies in my community group. Say, guys, I need your prayer. You know, you will experience, this is, if you're a single person, this is why you can handle singlehood, okay? Because you will have rich relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. At least that's the way it should be happening in the body of Christ. And that's worthy of an entire series. But I'm going on summer study break, all right? So maybe we'll, we'll have to pick it up next year. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to collect our weekend's gifts and offerings. And we're going to sing one closing song of worship. We're going to sing, Christ is enough for me. And sing it like we mean it. All right? Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us Jesus. And God, as I said earlier, there is nothing wrong with having a heart's desire for a significant other. Nothing at all. But you want us to want you more than anything. And it's not selfishness on your part. It's because you love us like nobody else can. And so I pray that even today, you'd shake us loose from other preoccupations, other things we think we got to have, got to have, got to have. And as we sing, Christ is enough for me, may we mean it. May it represent a sea change in our lives of seeking you wholeheartedly, first and foremost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.